Traditionally, FDA will give you the courtesy of letting you know in advance when they're coming, but they don't have to do that. And as I said earlier, if there are problems with it, with your device, they won't do that. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Are you tired of having to look in so many places to find the information you need as a medical device professional? Are you looking to level up your career, your device, or just your day-to-day performance on the job? Greenlight Guru Academy was started with you in mind. Our goal is to bring you online learning on all the topics that are impactful for medical device companies. The Academy represents years of experience helping companies get their devices on the market and keep them there. I can't tell you how many times we've heard people say, I wish I'd found this sooner in my career. So we want to share it with you as well. So come join us at academy.greenlight.guru. Create your account and start learning for free. That's right. It's absolutely free. If you do find a paid course or a membership that looks right for you, however, we'll, we've got your back. Listeners for the po- from the podcast can get 25% off any of our products in the Academy by using the code PODCAST25. Just enter the code during checkout and start leveling up today. Thanks for learning with us at Greenlight Guru Academy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's podcast. Today with us is a familiar voice on the podcast, Mike Drews. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Etienne. How are you? Doing well. It's good to be with you. I'm excited for this topic. Uh, When you proposed this one, I thought, well, that's not something I've really thought about before. What not to say to the FDA? Um, I'm and I. I'm sure you probably have some thought on why this uh, topic even came to mind. And if not, it's okay. We can go into some of the, uh, the the thoughts that we wanted to hit. But I'm curious, what what made you think of this topic? Well, I think it's a good question. And, and, and as always, thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your, your audience. I think uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, this is uh, one of those evergreen topics. This is a topic that um, that all companies struggle with from time to time, regardless of what kind of a medical device you might be developing or marketing. And also, and we can provide some some resource references and the resources to the to the podcast afterwards. There were a few recent articles floating around the internet about this particular topic. So I thought, yeah, gee, this would be a, a great topic to to peel the the layers of the onion back uh further. And as always, I'll add, you know, some of my Mike Drewsisms, my Mike Drews twist to this and share with you uh, a number of examples. I think this will be a good discussion. Cool. So one of the first things, I guess, when I think about communication is uh, it's a two-way street. So if we're thinking about what we shouldn't say to the FDA, maybe maybe where we could start is what what should we not answer or what can they not ask us or what can they ask us? Maybe one or the other. Well, they can basically ask any question that they want. Uh, and we'll get into several examples. Um, but one place to start the conversation maybe is uh, when can they ask you questions? And the way I think about it is there's sort of two phases to this. One on the manufacturing side, for example, when uh, you have an FDA inspector come in to do a, a facility inspection. And that's sort of the gist of the examples that were floating around on the Internet. But the other thing that I think of is on the regulatory side as part of a, a submission review 
process or as part of a pre-submission meeting, obviously FDA can ask you questions during during that time as well. And as you know from our many uh, uh, conversations before, Eddie, and there's there's no better bigger fan of communication with the FDA than me. But on the other hand, I have a big um, caveat, and that is my regulatory mantra: tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. So I absolutely refuse to ask FDA a question, even in a pre-sub meeting. I will ask questions, but in a in a very controlled way. And if anybody is interested, we've done a lot of uh, of, of of resources out there on pre-subs and specifically asking the right kind of questions. But um, uh, I don't like to ask the FDA questions. Instead, I say to the FDA, "Here's what I'm planning on doing." These are the reasons why I'm doing it. These are the reasons why I'm not doing what I'm not doing, and so on and so on. So bottom line, Eddie, and I hope this makes sense, whether it's on the regulatory side or you know pre-market or on the manufacturing quality side, post-market, my approach is virtually identical, just a sort of a minor modifications, but virtually identical. And the last thing that I'll say, Eddie, and then I'll share with you an example, and we can yeah, bring up some discussion here. I think it's important to manage FDA's expectations, whether you're dealing with a reviewer on the pre-market side or an inspector on the post-market side. We have to manage their expectations. So, for example, one of the questions that I love to ask, either when I'm sitting on the FDA side of the table, for example, in a pre-sub meeting, or if I'm acting as a, uh, I, I don't really market myself as a mock auditor, but sometimes companies do ask me to come in and sort of kick the tires of the quality management system. One of the most common questions, one of my favorite questions I love to ask is regardless of what you're doing, why are you doing that? And why are you doing it that way? And believe it or not, Eddie, sometimes I get a response I do it this way because our procedures don't make any sense, but that's what the procedure says. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good response for anybody, let alone to say to somebody to the FDA. If that's a legitimate concern, if you are following a procedure in your company as an employee, and for whatever reasons, the procedure doesn't make sense, uh, then you should bring that up to your company and say, hey, I'm doing this procedure, but I don't understand why it's being done this way. It doesn't seem to make sense. Can we have a conversation about either providing a justification of why we need to do it this way or alternatively, maybe we need to change the procedure, right? But just to say, well, I do it this way because uh, that's the way that people did before me or it doesn't make any sense or whatever, um, uh, it's just problematic on so many levels. And the other quick example I'll provide is I had a customer once during a manufacturing inspection that got a, got pinged from the FDA. They actually got a 43 observation from the FDA because the inspector came in. They noticed that the company was not following the industry standard in a particular area. And the company said, yes, you are correct, Mr. or Mrs. Inspector. We are not following the standard. And here's why. Well, long story short, Eddie, they actually came up with a method that was superior to the industry standard. 
that actually was better than the industry standard. And they explained that to the inspector and the inspector said, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. That makes sense. By the way, here's your 43 observation anyway. That's a problem because now we have just created not if we not only have we not created um, incentives for companies to to make things better, we've actually created disincentives for companies to make things better. And I would like to think that whether you work on the regulatory side or the quality side or somewhere else, that that is not the purpose of regulation or the regulatory environment to create incentives to hold things back. Anyway, any comments on anything that I just went through, Eddie? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, absolutely. One of the things I was thinking about is just the fact that that conversation takes place in two different places, maybe at your manufacturing facility, post-market, like you said, and an inspection is most common, or during the submission process. Um, I could see neither neither of those being a good time to say, well, we're not sure, or we don't know why that is the case. So I'm, I think we think of that intuitively with regulatory submissions. You know, you, you know, you're going to be talking to the FDA and showing what you're what you're doing. But um, uh, what, during an inspection, we may not be as well versed uh, the the all the personnel. So this is kind of a this makes me think of of applying this conversation to a broader audience. So. Those of you listening, you may be thinking, oh, yes, that's absolutely right. Well, you need to share that with all of the employees in your facility as well. That's one of the things that made me think of. This needs to be uh, shared with everybody on the floor. You know, this is we do things for a reason. Good point. And actually, that brings up another question. You know, one of the many philosophies I've developed over the 30 years or so I've been playing this game is you can't anticipate every problem or every question, but you can certainly anticipate many of them, most of them. So whether it's, you know, prior to going to the FDA with a, a pre-sub meeting or prior to an FDA inspection, I will always try to anticipate as many questions, as many problems as I can. But as I just said, you can never anticipate all of them. So in the event that somebody does ask you a question, whether it's in a pre-sub or a submission review or an inspection, it doesn't matter. If they ask you a question that for whatever reasons you didn't anticipate that you cannot answer at that time, I have a number of strategies to sort of kick the can down the road, so to speak. In other words, to buy myself some time. For example, I might say, gee, that's a terrific question. However, the person that knows the most about that particular topic is not uh, part of this meeting or is not available right now. Can we follow up with you and get that person in the room with us? That's that's one. Or, for example, uh, another example is if you're doing a, a meeting with the FDA where you only have, say, one hour and somebody asks you a question, and you say, gee, that's a great question, but unfortunately, we only have a certain amount of time today, uh, and rather than trying to give you a short answer now, we'll follow up with you later with a with an appropriate answer. Bottom line, if FDA asks you a question that you can't answer or that you're not able to answer at the moment, don't feel that you have to absolutely have to right there because chances are, and I've seen this happen before, uh, you know, people start throwing things out and, and, and you get yourself into to more problems than you started with. Use some kind of a strategy like the ones that I just shared to buy yourself some time. That's great. I, I like those two. Uh, very, very easy to remember and easy to apply. Uh, if you don't have the answer, get the expertise in the room. If you don't have the answer, get more time to tell the yeah. answer. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. So if we think about, so if I'm thinking from a submission standpoint, okay, that's easy. I know I'm probably planning. I may be even initiating that conversation with the FDA. But what about when the FDA comes to visit me? That's not always on my schedule. When when 
can I anticipate the FDA coming to visit or inspect me for those conversations? Yeah, great question, Eddie. And let me just flip it around real quick. Uh, Do you think that FDA should announce, let's just talk about manufacturing inspections for a moment here. Do you think that they should announce to the company in advance that, uh, you know, call you up and say, oh, you know, next Tuesday we're coming in to to inspect your facility. Do you think that they should be, do you think that they should do that? No, I don't. No, for the reason that the same, uh, if, if I want you to truly test my knowledge, it would likely be a pop quiz where you test my knowledge. Not, not, hey, in three days, I'm going to ask you this question. And I now have three days to research that. But do you actually know the answer? Yeah, exactly. Exactly correct. And that's exactly how I feel, Eddie. And as a matter of fact, um, if the true intent of an inspection is to find out how the company is doing on a normal or an average day, then what is the purpose? What is the point other than perhaps simply scheduling convenience of FDA telling the company in advance? In other words, I don't want the company, and this is not to be patronizing by any means, but I don't want the company to be on their best behavior. You know, when the FDA comes in, I want the FDA to see them under normal circumstances. That's, you yeah. know, that's, that's more realistic. It's kind of like I thought about this metaphor recently, Eddie, and it's kind of like when you prepare your taxes. If you, when you're preparing your taxes, if FDA, uh, sorry, if IRS calls you up and says, Eddie, and the next tax return you're going to file, we're going to audit you. Oh. You might be a little more careful, a little more conservative, <laughs> you know, than if they didn't tell you that in advance. So to me, the FDA telling a company in advance that they're coming to inspect them is kind of like the IRS telling you in advance before you file your tax return that we're going to audit you. Uh, There's always the possibility of getting an audit, just like there's always the possibility of getting an inspection. But to be told, you know, it's going to happen next Tuesday, that's different. Okay, so coming back to your original question of when can FDA come to me? Well, the short answer is like in everything in regulatory, it depends. For class two or lower medical devices, uh, there is no uh, inspection required as part of the clearance or the uh, the 510k or the de novo process. Uh, the in the class three universe, for example, for the for those in our audience that are working on PMA devices, one of the many criteria of getting a PMA is you have to have a pre market manufacturing inspection, but that's only in the class three universe, with one exception. Because remember, Eddie and Good regulatory professionals know the rules. The best ones know the exceptions. In the de novo world, uh, there was a, a recent change that allows, in some cases, FDA to ask for a pre-market inspection of a de novo device. Um, but that FDA can use their enforcement discretion to to uh, to determine when that's necessary, and it doesn't happen very often. But for the most part. Um, PMA devices, you have to have an inspection before the product gets onto the market uh, for 510K and de novo devices after. More importantly, and this is where I tell, this is what I tell my my customers all the time. If you have a, a, a small company or a new medical device company that's developing maybe their first medical device, they don't have a medical device on the market yet. When you get on FDA's radar, so to speak, is when you become FDA registered. In other words, prior to FDA registration, FDA will not inspect you because theoretically you do not have a product on the market yet. Therefore, why the heck would they inspect you? It makes no sense. Sure. Once you become FDA registered, 
that puts the company on FDA's radar. And assuming that we're in the class two or lower universe, you will be inspected at some point in time, whether it's next week, next month, next year, five years from now, some point in time, then you will be inspected. Inspected. There's one other circumstance when FDA will do an inspection. So one, I just mentioned after FDA registration, that's, you know, the, the typical way, but there's another time that FDA will usually come in and do an inspection. And by the way, this is typically an unannounced inspection. Can you guess when that might be, Eddie? Is that the guided for cause if someone blows a whistle? Uh, well, it could be if somebody blows a whistle, but I was going to more uh, broadly speaking, if there's a problem, right? if your device starts, for example, malfunctioning, if people start getting harmed and so on and so on, then FDA will come in and likely do an inspection. And most likely they will not call you in advance and tell you that they were, that they're coming. So that would be an unannounced inspection. But typically, FDA does give you the courtesy, and it really is a courtesy to say, oh, by the way, Eddie, and we're planning on dropping by your company, you know, next Tuesday for for a little visit, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wonder how many companies truly take advantage of that luxury. (laughs) I'm sure they do. But uh, the, the mantra that I was always told was, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. But I'm sure a lot are getting ready during that time. The smarter ones are certainly getting ready. And by the way, the startup smarter ones are not waiting for FDA to call them up. And I'm telling you, I'm going to be here next Tuesday. Uh, But we'll talk about that more in a a couple of minutes. Yeah. So you mentioned, so the FDA will tell you in advance (laughs) they're coming. Um, How should they prepare if you, if you get that, whether, whether you wait until they tell you or before, like you said, the smarter ones are preparing long before or just staying ready. When and how should you be preparing for that FDA inspection? Well, I would like to think, Eddie, and maybe I'm a little naive here, but I would like to think that preparing for an exit for an FDA inspection is a bit of an oxymoron to begin with, because at least in the theoretical world, and I would like to think in the real world as well, that companies will always be ready for an FDA inspection. In other words, it should not be a source of anxiety or apprehension or nervousness or panic. You know, on the other hand, uh, on the contrary, the company should be ready at any point in time for FDA or anybody else to come in and take a look at what they're doing, ask questions and, and, and so on and so on. So I think on a personal note, I think it's kind of unfortunate that so many people in our industry, they have this this connotation that if and when the, com- the FDA comes to visit them, that it's a uh, anxiety written experience and it really shouldn't be it's not it's not intended you should always be prepared for an fda inspection kind of like we've talked about um recalls before eddie kind of like having a prophylactic recall plan in other words don't wait for an actual recall of your device to happen and then ask yourself the question oh gee what do i do no, 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 no. That's terrible strategy. That's not even a strategy at all. In fact, be proactive, be prophylactic and come up with a recall plan in advance. Obviously, we all hope that none of our medical devices will ever have to go through a recall. That goes without saying. But obviously, recalls do happen. So if and when it does happen, be prepared in advance for the recall. What was the old Boy Scout motto, Eddie? And I, I was an Eagle Scout once upon a time. Be prepared. 
right? So be prepared in advance for an FDA spec inspection. Another thing that many companies do, obviously, for uh, to prepare for inspection is to have a mock audit, to have somebody come in, usually from the outside, and kind of play the role of the FDA inspector and go through their systems and, you know, ask questions and look for problems. As I said earlier, I don't, I don't market myself as a mock auditor per se, but I do, uh, spend some of my time coming in when companies ask me to evaluate their quality management system and some of their processes and, and, and so on and so on. So here are some things that you might want to look for when you're looking to to hire a mock auditor. First of all, look for somebody kind of like an independent reviewer, if, if, if our audience is familiar with the concept of the independent reviewer from the design review. And by the way, I also work as an independent reviewer um, uh, for design reviews. And one thing that I always want in the agreement is that no matter what I say to the company, I want to get paid. Because you want an independent reviewer, you want just like a mock auditor, you want them to be brutally honest. If you have an independent reviewer or if you have a mock auditor come in and say, oh, you're doing a wonderful job, pat yourself on the back, have a parade. I'm sorry, you might be ticking the 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 um, the box, you know, the regulatory requirement. You are meeting the letter of the law, but you are not meeting the spirit of the law. You want somebody to literally be brutally honest and uh, kind of like any of our, in, in our audience that are familiar on the clinical side, an M&M conference, a morbidity and mortality conference that physicians and surgeons have all the time where you literally get into a room and you pull the gloves off and you, you duke it out. You want to talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. So look for somebody that's going to be brutally honest. Um, uh, when I ask people questions in audits or reviewing their QMS, I will give them the benefit of the doubt unless they give me reason or until they give me reason to do otherwise. For example, and I know we like to talk about examples, Eddie, and so here's an example. I had a company once, uh, this was a few years ago, um, who was telling me how robust their document control system was, their document management system was. And just coincidentally, I wish I could have planned this, but it was, it was not. It was just coincidentally. I happened to notice that the, uh, they were projecting, you know, what was in that particular section of the QMS, uh, on the, on the screen, you know, from the computer. And I also had a copy of it, a hard copy of it in a binder in front of me. I just happened to notice coincidentally that the rev date on the bottom of what was on the screen was different than the rev date that was printed on the, the bottom of my uh, printed manual. Mm. They just destroyed all of their credibility when it comes to not just how robust their document management system was, because clearly it wasn't robust. It wasn't working for such a bad you know, thing. But I've learned that if the company is making such a small, seemingly simple, maybe even a trivial mistake in this area, what other mistakes might they be making in other areas that might not be so simple, that might not so be so trivial? So once again, I will give the people the benefit of the doubt unless and until they give me you know, reason to think otherwise. And then at that point, I will pounce. Yeah. Now, how many, you know, other reviewers or inspectors do that? I don't know, but that's 
my my approach. Does that make sense? I think that's good advice when choosing a mock auditor. We don't talk about that a lot uh, or very often or choosing an independent reviewer. I think that's really good advice. I really like the example you used with doing your taxes. Um, I remember getting audited. I never thought this was happening to me. In 2018, I was audited having done my own taxes all my life. I like to to follow the forms and and I had messed up. I look back on that and I think, would I have done anything differently? I don't know. I always, but anymore, I assume I will be audited. So everything stays the same. But to your point, you should assume you will be inspected because you will be. And uh, that's really good advice. Be ready so you don't have to get ready. What about the actual conversation? So we're preparing for the conversation by um, just being ready from a manufacturing standpoint, from a regulatory submission standpoint. But then, and, and you did give some advice on um, how to answer some questions that maybe we don't have the answer to right off the top of our head. We need a, to get the expert expert in the room, get some extra time on the calendar. What about some suggestions or general guidelines uh, in answering those questions when the time comes? Yeah, great question, Eddie. And, and a lot of the advice that I'm giving today, as well as a lot of the regulatory and quality advice that I give in other areas, is based not just on my regulatory or quality experience, but on my uh, product, uh, I'm sorry, on my expert witness experience. Because as I've mentioned before, Eddie, and I spend a, a, a growing part of my time working as, uh, as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases. And so, for example, one of the things that I do with my attorneys prior to a deposition or being, you know, testifying in a, in a, in a court is do some role play. Where, you know, the attorney will, will play opposing counsel and ask me questions and see how I respond. And then we, you know, have to be a little careful what I say here, but sure. how I should best wordsmith my, my responses and so on. I would suggest that companies, when they prepare for an inspection, and as we talked about uh, earlier, Eddie, and you should always be prepared. So maybe this is something that you do on a regular basis, perhaps a couple of times a year, is you do some role playing and you have somebody, ideally somebody from the outside. I don't think it's a good idea to have somebody from in your company do this, but somebody from the outside, whether it's a independent consultant like me or somebody else, come in and do some role playing and put you know i work as a you know as a consultant for the fda so i will temporarily put my fda hat on and you know ask you questions about you know for example why are you doing something a certain way and if the person you know is like the deer in the headlights or they say well that's what the procedure says but it doesn't make any sense you know that that's a problem and at least if you do it in this mm, practice environment it's a little safer then if you do it, you know, when FDA is in the room, so to speak, that's obviously, a, you know, certainly a more more controlled environment. Another piece of advice, and this is general advice, Eddie, and you may have heard this before, but I've learned it not just in my uh, uh, FDA inspection experience, but in my regulatory experience and in my expert witness experience as well. And that is answer the question that was asked and only that question in other words don't go beyond don't don't provide additional information and i'll be honest with you Eddie, and i have a very difficult time with this one myself because i usually will you know provide additional information that was not asked for and i remember in it might have been my very first deposition i learned that lesson the hard way I mentioned something that was not in my expert witness report as an anecdotal example and opposing counsel just pounced like a, like a wow. lion. It just, you know, you know, so I learned that not to do that again, but here's a classic example. If I ask you the question, Eddie, and 
What time is it? How would you respond? 1234 CST. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I screwed up the, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I screwed up. I'm sorry. I, I, I for, sure. for, forget I asked you that question. Raise my mind. I, I should have, I should have asked you the question, Eddie. Do you know what time it is? Yes. Do you know what time <laughs> it is? And if you would have, and many people would look at your watch and say, you know, 1234 CST, that's great, but you're not answering the question that I asked. I asked the question, do you know what time it is? And the proper response would be, yes, I do, or no, I don't, right? So that's a very simple, but it's a very powerful um, example. I'm sorry, I screwed up the example. No, 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 no. I'm glad but, you bring up that, that example. It's it's interesting. Well, first of all, the fact that you do podcasts and the expert witness has got to give your brain a bit of a uh, just, just <laughs> overheat it sometimes, because oftentimes I tell people when we're doing podcasts now, Answer the question you wish I had asked so that we can have a good conversation. But that is not what you do during an inspection. <laughs> I can get away with that in a podcast, uh, right. Eddie, and politicians get away with it all the time. Right. But in a deposition or in a or mm. in a trial, a good attorney on an opposing counsel, they won't let you get away with that. Yeah. And so <laughs> and extending that logic, those are kind of two extremes. We have just a conversation that we can have. We have a deposition or a trial. Now, where do, on that spectrum does an FDA inspector fall? Do I treat it like the, yes, I know what time it is. At some point, will they see this guy is just, you know, I, I, you know, there's, there's a human element there, but what are your thoughts? That's a very good question. Thank you for asking that, Eddie. And, and I think um, uh, in that spectrum of uh, FDA inspectrum versus expert witness, I'm going to be closer to the, um, uh, to the, to the, uh, to the inspection side. In other words, legal. I will say, you know, I will provide the minimal amount of information. If I think it's necessary to provide a little additional information, then I might do that. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to worry quite so much about getting pounced on like I would from uh, opposing counsel in a, in a deposition. But, um, but nonetheless, I still would stick with the advice of asking, answering the question that was asked and not going beyond that. Uh, make, but again, I'll be the first to admit, I sometimes have a difficult time doing that myself. It makes me think of a uh, an example we have from engineering where um, there some guys had the, the T-shirt, uh, anyone can extrapolate, engineers interpolate. And so when we're thinking of things, if an inspector is thinking, I'm going to ask this question so that I can then ask this question, if you answer ahead of what he's asking, you may not be going down the train that he's going. So it's not necessarily disrespectful. Exactly. It's more respectful to answer the question so that he can proceed down his train of thought rather than well, interpolate or extrapolate. Yeah. It's actually, it's interesting that you phrased it that way, Eddie, and because to me, what it sounds like you're describing essentially is the Socratic method, something that I use all the time. In other words, you know, Socrates was a very smart guy. Whenever somebody asked Socrates a question, he would never answer it with an answer. He would always respond with a question, but it was a leading question such that after asking you a series of these leading questions, he got you to ultimately go where he wanted you to go. But you felt as if you got there yourself. It's an extraordinarily effective communication technique. I use it in my teaching all the time. I use it in my consulting all the time. And if I'm an FDA uh, consultant, I'll use it, you know, the, the, in the FDA uh, all the time as well. And speaking of questions, one other piece of advice that I'll share with our audience, Eddie, and uh, another thing that I've learned from my expert witness work and from my FDA work as well, is before you answer the question, 
If you're not sure you completely understand the question or why it's being asked, feel free to ask a clarifying question. For example, what specifically are you looking for? Or why are you asking me for this particular information? There's absolutely nothing wrong with asking a clarifying question. And it's better for you to really understand the the question so that you can give the proper answer than to just kind of guess what you think is being meant. And, you know, that's like throwing darts at a dartboard with, with a, with a blindfold on. And I see this not just in FDA inspections, Eddie, but I see this in, uh, in, Re, um, uh, review, you know, pre-market reviews all the time. When FDA comes back, for example, w- after a company makes a submission of a 510K or a PMA with an additional information request, an AIR, FDA, to their credit, they will script out their questions as best as they can. But sometimes when the reader, the company reads the question, they're not exactly sure what the question is asking, or they're not exactly sure why the question is being asked. So I will frequently ask for FDA to have a quick, I prefer to do it as a meeting or if necessary, you know, via email, you know, to, to, to clarify exactly what information are you looking for or why are you asking this question? So asking a clarifying question before um, providing the answer is a good strategy. And another way that you could use that technique, going back to what we talked about a moment ago, Eddie, and if somebody asks you a question that you can't answer, if you don't think you could ever answer it, then it's good to use one of those strategies that, um, that you, that, that I mentioned earlier. Sure. If you think that you can answer it, but you need a few seconds to, to think about it, to craft your answer, here's a strategy. Ask a clarifying question, even though you might think you already understand the question. Ask yourself a clarifying question to buy yourself a little bit of time while the person is responding to your clarifying question, then you can, you know, be thinking about what's how you're going to respond to their original question. So as you've heard me talk about, Edian, before, I characterize the relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game in every sense of the word. This is just another way of playing that game. I won't go so far as to say manipulating the game, but playing the game. Winning the game is a heck of a lot more complicated than just simply reading and understanding the rules of the game. Right. It's not single deck blackjack, it's poker. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's a that's a fabulous metaphor. I'll have to use that one myself. <laughs> so okay, we've got we've got the questions uh that maybe we know the answer and 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 so forth. Uh or maybe we need to buy some time. But what about if a problem is found? How do we handle that? Yeah, great question. And look, I would like to think that if you're doing all the things properly, that there wouldn't be any problems. But if there, if everybody did everything the way they should, then we probably wouldn't need FDA inspections. We probably wouldn't need an FDA. So given that companies do sometimes have problems, most of the time inadvertently or by mistake, occasionally not, um, the question is what to do. First of all, kind of like we just talked about before in terms of clarifying question, make sure you understand exactly what the problem is. In other words, or what the concern is. I don't want to necessarily use the word problem all the time because problem sort of automatically assumes a negative connotation. So what is the concern or what is the question that the, um, that the reviewer has here? Make sure that you understand exactly what that concern or that discrepancy is. Uh, once you, 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 you do that, unless this is an absolutely urgent matter, in other words, unless, for example, you're in the class three universe, you're making 
totally implantable artificial hearts. And all of a sudden, the last several devices that were implanted failed and the people died. Okay, that's an extreme case. And that's something that you need to respond to like ASAP. Okay, but in most times in medical devices, it's not so urgent. It's not so extreme. So don't feel that you have to solve the problem right then and there. If it's a simple problem, if it's just a matter of paperwork, well, the information that you found that you're looking for is in this other document. Here, let me give it to you. Okay, that's fine. That's an easy concern to address. But most concerns, certainly the concerns that I get involved with are a little more complicated than that. And so again, buy yourself some 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 time to say, okay, well, you know, we'll investigate this, we'll put together a response and we'll get back to you. You know, don't feel like you have to address it. And most of the time, inspections, when the, when a FDA comes in for an inspection, most of the time, the inspector is not there for just like 30 minutes or an hour. Most of the time, they're there for maybe a few days, in some cases, a few weeks. So if they bring up concern and it's something that you can, you know, deal with, but you need a little bit of time, say, you know, we'll get back to you tomorrow. Or if there's a weekend, you know, take advantage of the weekend. If you need to pull your time, your team in, you know, on a Saturday to, to come up with a response, say, you know, we'll get back to you on that on Monday. So unless, you know, there's uh, an imminent threat of, of harm, you don't have to solve the problem right away. And then the other thing that I'll say in this regard, Etienne, because this is a suggestion that I've made to the FDA many times over the years, which they still have not implemented. We don't have a good process in place for when companies do make, do get 43 observations or worse warning letters uh, for the company to address their proposed solution to the problem with FDA in advance, uh, in advance to make sure that, you know, both the company as well as the FDA agree that yes, this is a reasonable and appropriate solution for this particular problem. This is one of the reasons why, and when companies get 43s or or warning letters, sometimes, and I have many examples where the same company will get the same 43 or the same warning letter, sometimes multiple times over and over again. And part of the reason may be because either they're not addressing the concern, and if they are, and if they're not, then shame on them. That's you know, that those people shouldn't be in this business. Or if they are are addressing the concern, but they're addressing it inappropriately or not effectively, then they're going to be getting another 43 observation or another warning letter in the, in the future. It stands to reason. So we need a way, I've suggested to the FDA, we create another form of a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub having to deal with manufacturing issues exactly like this. I had a company recently who got a 43 observation in a, manu a manufacturing inspection because FDA said they did not investigate all complaints equally, which is true. And we said to the FDA inspector, yes, you're exactly right. Let us explain why. When you think about it, investigating all complaints equally doesn't make any sense. We have a system uh, previously spelled out in detail in our quality management system, which describes which complaints get investigated and which do not, and in what sort of a priority and what are the, the steps and so on and so on. Kind of like the metaphor that I often like to use, Eddie, and if you go to the emergency room, a patient having a heart attack is supposed to get treated first over a patient that has a splinter in their finger. We yeah. use a triage system. So this particular device company, they made a respiratory device. If the complaint was about 
a valve on the device not working or a gauge on the device not being accurate or something like that. Okay, that's a no-brainer. That needs to be investigated, and that needs to be investigated right away. But on the other hand, if somebody calls in with a complaint uh, that says, well, there's a scratch on the outer housing of the device, and it has no impact of you know safety, efficacy, performance, any of that kind of stuff, then what the heck is the purpose of investigating that complaint? Certainly, you know, in, you know, treating it equal to a complaint that, uh, you know, a valve or the gauge on the device is not working. The point of this example, Eddie, and is very simple. If we had an opportunity to, to present this to the FDA in advance, i.e. prophylactically, like I have suggested many times, a form of a pre-sub meeting, we create a new type of a pre-sub for manufacturing issues like this, where we could prevent, sorry, we could present this plan to the FDA prophylactically, then we would have avoided all of these problems. It's just, uh, you know, it goes back to, yeah. I think, what I said earlier, the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. One of the things that you made me think of when you were talking about if someone asked you a question or you, you, you gave the advice of truly understanding what the problem is before answering, perhaps, if there's an issue or maybe it's just a concern, truly understanding that, and then maybe buying some time and investigating that. One of the yep. things I thought of was um, when we give this advice, one other tiny little layer I would put on is some people need to learn what it means to investigate a problem. Um, <laughs> if, if we're expecting them to come back the next day during that inspection period, you know, maybe it's two, three days, uh, we may come back with what we think is a solution. But really, we don't, a, lot of, a lot of us just don't know how to do proper investigation, you know, root cause analysis. I could not agree with you more. And this is a topic of a whole different it is. discussion. You may remember one of our uh, recent podcasts from a few months ago. We discussed some of the most common reasons why companies get 43s and warning letters from FDA. And one of them was for not investigating complaints. If there's simply no investigation whatsoever, that's a difficult thing to excuse. What usually happens is it's not a mm, sufficient investigation. And now you get into that whole infinite gray area of what constitutes a, a sufficient investigation. Mm. But um, yeah. and, and that's where it gets interesting. Yeah. But the, 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 the last piece of advice in this area I would give, Eddie, and then I think we, we probably can wrap this up, sure. is um, if FDA brings up a concern or brings up a problem that you recognize is actually a mistake, like, for example, I'll use the complaint example. Like, for example, they say, well, here's a record of a complaint coming in on such and such a day. I can't see any record of you investigating this complaint. What the heck is going on here? And remember, uh, Eddie, and as I said earlier, I will give people the benefit of the doubt until they give me cause, you know, otherwise. If they say, oh, I'm sorry, that that's on this particular document over here. You just didn't see that. Fine. Not a problem. But if you recognize there's a complaint that for whatever reason fell through the cracks and you didn't investigate it, would you say something like, gee, that's interesting. You know, <laughs> we should have investigated that. You know, now you're you're on, uh, you know, slippery, slippery slope here. Right. So this is another one of those times where I would probably try to buy myself some time and say, um, let us look into this 
if you really want to, here, here's a uh, uh, an interesting example. Uh, Whenever I see that smile, I want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about, and you're very familiar with with Kappa's corrective actions, preventative actions. Which, by the way, I've said on many podcasts, I think it's back ass words. I think we should call it a a PACA, a correct, correct, a pr- protective. Uh, sorry, a preventive action, corrective action. But nonetheless. Um, would you say, gee, that complaint apparently didn't get investigated. Perhaps we should consider opening a kappa. I think that's a very legitimate question to ask within your company. I'm not sure that I would bring that up when the FDA inspector is standing in the room. But there could be an advantage of doing that. I'm I'm not sure. But anyway, um something to some of that about. goes back to the softer skills, but but I agree. Considering it up on the spectrum closer to the legal side, just keeping that in mind, I think is good advice, like you said earlier. Exactly. What else is important? I know we're about out of time. Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover? Well, like like all the topics that we talk about, Eddie, and I think we're, you know, we're, this is a great start to the conversation, but we're just, you know, scratching the surface, you know, the, the devil's in the details. Uh, just to kind of go through and recap what I thought were some of the highlights and, and more important takeaways from today's conversation. And then Eddie and I would love to hear what, you know, what you think were the important things. But a couple of things. First of all, as we discussed, always be prepared for an inspection. Traditionally, FDA will give you the courtesy of letting you know in advance when they're coming, but they don't have to do that. And as I said earlier, if there are problems with the, with your device, they won't do that. They will just show up unannounced on your door. Hey, knock on, knock, you knock on your door. Hi, it's Mike from the FDA. You know, invite me in to, to take a look at everything and pay attention, not just to what's going on with your particular device, but in your competitors devices as well. Mm. This is something that I don't think I mentioned before, but it's worth noting here. If there are problems with other similar devices, for example, if your device is on the market as a 510K and you showed the FDA that your device is substantially equivalent to your competitor's device, if it turns out that your competitor's device has problems and maybe that device is under recall, don't be surprised if FDA comes knocking on your door unexpectedly and says, hey, we noticed that your competitor who, by the way, has a very similar device to you, is having problems. We want to come in and take a look at what you're doing to make sure that those problems don't happen to you, right? right. So yeah. that you know that can and, and does happen. And to be honest with you, that's FDA doing their job. That's what they get paid to do. Most important, and this is going to sound a little trite perhaps, maybe a bit even naive, but most important, if you're doing what you need to do, not just what the regulation requires you to do, because as we've talked about before, that's like academic equivalent of being a C student. If you're doing what you need to do, and if you can prove, if you have objective evidence that you're doing what you need to do, and if you can explain or rationalize or defend not just what you're doing, what you need to do, but what you're not doing and why you don't need to do that. If you can do those three things, if you can, if you're doing what you need to do, if you can prove you have objective evidence uh, of that you're doing it, and if you can explain or rationalize when somebody challenges you, why are you doing it this way? Then you shouldn't have any problems at all, and you should uh, welcome FDA or anybody else to come into your facility at any time. 
because you're well prepared. You have you have explanations. You have evidence. You know, I and I have to be a little careful what I say here, Edian, but um, when I'm working on the FDA side of the table, I will frequently ask the company a question, even if I agree with what they're doing. I will ask them a question like, why are you doing it this way? Mm-hmm. And if they give me some explanation that's based on some logic from engineering or medicine that makes sense to me, then I will give them a lot more latitude, a lot more leeway. But if they give me a response like, well, I'm doing this because it's required or worse, I'm doing this because the 50 other companies that work in this area do it that way, therefore I'm doing it that way. I'm sorry, I'll be all over them like a cheap suit because that's not the way this game is supposed to be played. Yeah. I, to your earlier point about um, going above and beyond, I think sometimes we throw around the word standard so much that we forget in this industry what the classical definition definition is, which is just a baseline expectation, um, normal behavior. And so it's okay to go above the, above and beyond the standard. I think we forget that sometimes. Exactly. Good point. There are so many times where something is considered the gold standard and gold standard doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or that it works. Yeah. I know we're out of time. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on the episode and uh, we'll let you get back to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, Check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our Kappa management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, This is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.